Shalom, this is Rabbi Thomas Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue, bringing you Padishah number 18, Mishpatim, which translates as rulings, from Shemot, or Exodus 21, 1 through 24, 18. Now, Mishpatim, or rulings, describes the focus of this Padishah, which extensively covers the laws God expects his people to follow as a civilized and set-apart nation. These are for all mankind, not just for the Jews, as taught in Christianity. And yes, they are still in effect. They were not nailed to the cross. Laws were given because everything we think, say, and do has consequences. According to chaos theory, everything, including even the smallest action, whether mental or physical, can cause strikingly great consequences. It's critical to think before we act and to consider the possible effects of our choices. And I submit that this is one reason that the Shema found in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 11, is the focal point or crux of God's Torah. It includes loving God with every part of our being, which by default means loving him and obeying him out of that love and teaching our children to do the same. Why do you think the Chinese Communist Party and other communist nations are so diligently and effectively attacking our country by starting with the churches and our children? It's because the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And unfortunately, that hand is no longer the mother or a mother figure in many cases. With efforts to emasculate the male gender and secular humanistic teaching being taught right under the noses of our parents, the children are easy targets. Just think of the difference between the focus on the sanctity of life contained within these rulings given by God and what we're witnessing today. Without law, total chaos with confusion, panic, and the fall of society's results. Now the Israelites had first-hand experience with what it was like to be a slave and a harshly treated one by the Egyptians. A person could become a slave because of poverty, debt, or crime, but Hebrew slaves were treated as humans unlike what we tend to think of a slave-master relationship that existed in America. Hebrew slaves were allowed to work their way to freedom, and all Hebrew slaves had to be set free in a jubilee year, no matter how long they had worked. Now, teaching laws to an entire people was almost unheard of in the ancient world. Just as we're witnessing today, laws that should be universal are applied differently for different classes of people, depending on the circumstances, such as which attorney or judge is chosen for the case. But again, God's laws are all universal for all mankind. Now Hebrew slaves also lived in the homes of their masters and they were not relegated to slave gangs working on plantations. I submit that God ordained that the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt to acquaint them with what it was like to be a slave so that they could really understand the fears, the concerns, and the hopes of their slaves and treat them like fellow human beings as God commands. Now, addressing verse 17, we learn that obedience toward parents is considered the cornerstone of all authority and order. Again, we can go back to the strategy used by the communists to undermine American society that's proving to be very successful. That is, infiltrating the minds of children through social media, video games, and other external stimuli against any existence of authority, including that of parents and God. In the laws of Hammurabi, a son who strikes his father is punished by cutting off his hand. The biblical law applies to both parents. 
The death penalty suggests that God regards this crime as posing a severe danger to society, as I previously mentioned. Today in America, a child can strike a parent and the parent may be taken to jail and the child placed in the care of a foster home or other family members if all the child need do is call the Department of Children and Families or the police and report that they are being abused by their parent or parents and the convoluted cascade of events is launched. Looking at Hebrews translation of verse 17, we notice some differentiation in the details. For example, insults. The Hebrew verb translates treat lightly, which has a wide variety of meanings, including disrespect, to revile, to treat contemptuously, or curse. Now, the death penalty may be met rhetorically as a deterrent, but if the translation means curse, it may be met literally because of the potentially serious consequences that result from cursing. According to God's Torah, cursing is not only speaking evil of someone, but bringing evil upon someone. A perfect example of this is found in Numbers 22.6, where Balak sought Balaam to curse the Israelites so that he could defeat them. Now, responsibility for our property and pets is clearly addressed in 21, verses 28 through 32. Here we have a situation in which an ox gores a man or a woman to death. The ox is stoned because it's taken a human life, and the flesh cannot be eaten for the same reason but the owner is not to be punished. However, if the owner has previous knowledge of his ox-goring people, the ox and the owner are put to death. Imagine how fewer incidents of ill-tempered dogs attacking children and adults there would be if these laws were still uh, exercised. Differing from Babylonian law at the time, there was nothing done to the ox and the owner simply had to pay damages. Comparing God's law on this issue to Babylonian law, we can easily see how far our social system of laws has followed, fallen from the plumb line of God's Torah. And finally, I want to address two of the laws that may be some of the most difficult for us to obey. Nevertheless, we're commanded to do so. Chapter 23, 1 through 5. The chapter starts with the prohibition against Lashon Hara, that is the evil tongue or gossip. This is a serious sin. And we are to learn to avoid it as much as possible. And this goes back to the profound effects of a small action or speech, though it can cause our testimony for God to be completely destroyed. We're also commanded to be neutral in our testimony if called to testify in a court case or before a group of people and not favor the poor or the rich. In verse 4, we're told that we must return the property of our enemies if we see it. In the Torah, an ox and or ass is used, but this applies to anything. For example, we may see our enemy's bike or lawn chair or other items where they don't belong. If we see them out of place, we are to return them without a second thought. In verse 5, we're told that when we see our enemy's animal lying under its burden, we are to help raise it, even though our first thought may to be ignore him, to ignore him. That's a humanistic, uh, instinctive action to not do anything. A Torah-driven action would be to help anyway. We must learn to replace our human nature with the mindset God wants us to acquire to the point we live our lives according to God's laws and commands automatically. That's the new nature. A beginning point is where we may first think of a thought or action that's not consistent with God's Torah because it's instinctive. 
and then mentally and physically translate the end result to a behavior that is pleasing to God. This is a lifelong process, but it does get easier with hearing, and I mean physically and, and mentally hearing, internalizing, and acting on the word of God, God's Torah. Our Haftarah is out of Jeremiah 34, and in this week's Haftarah, Jeremiah describes the punishment that would befall the Jews because they continued enslaving their Hebrew slaves after six years of service, transgressing the commandment discussed at the beginning of this week's Torah reading. Now, with all of this that was about to happen to the Jews, what do you think is going to happen to this nation that has done everything to get rid of God and all his laws and make their own gods, little g? King Zedekiah made a pact with the people according to which they would all release their Jewish slaves after six years of service as commanded. Shortly thereafter, the Jews reneged on this pact and forced their freed slaves to re-enter into service. Now, God did then dispatch Jeremiah with a message of rebuke, and it says, quote, Therefore, so says the Lord, You have not hearkened to me to proclaim freedom, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Let me try that again. Quote, Therefore, so says the Lord, you have not hearkened to me to proclaim freedom, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim freedom to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine, and I will make you an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Unquote. The Haftarah then vividly depicts the destruction and devastation that the Jews would experience. The Haftarah concludes with these words of reassurance. Quote, just as I would not cancel my covenant with the day and night, and I would not cancel the laws of heaven and earth. Note, he says, I would not cancel the laws of heaven and earth. So too, I will not cast away the descendants of Jacob, for I will return their captivity to their land and have mercy on them, unquote. So God himself again states that his laws of heaven and earth have not been canceled. All right, going to the Brit Kaddishah, that's in Acts chapter 9 and 10. Although this scenario and time God is talking to Ananias about Paul or Shaul, we can apply this mission of Paul to Yeshua's reason for coming to earth as God incarnate. Quote, But the Lord said to him, that's Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Unquote. We must examine this passage in the context of our parashah to make the connection. Through Yahweh Yeshua's plan, Shaul or Paul was destined for a radical change in his life from one of human aristocracy to one of ultimate servanthood. No, he was not converted to a Christian. He was converted to Messianic Judaism. Check it out. He was a rabbinic Jew. He was converted to Messianic Judaism, not Christianity. Similarly, Yeshua left the very presence of God in heaven to assume the role of ultimate servant to God, Yahweh. Paul's role was to expose Yahweh as Yeshua to the lost sheep of Israel first. Check it out, Matthew 15:24, And not to the Gentiles at that time, Matthew 10:5. Then they were go to the Gentiles and kings and teach the truth of the resurrection and what it means for humankind. Matthew 28:19. We read in this passage, quote, 
Therefore, go and make people from all nations into Talmudim, that's disciples, immersing them into the reality of the name. It is not Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That was not in the original manuscripts. The name, capital N, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. There we go again. Everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, yes, even until the end of the age. So again, we see that God is making it very clear that his laws have not been abrogated. Now perhaps God as Adonai gave the 74 witnesses at Sinai a glimpse of Yeshua by allowing them to see his feet and the clear blue base signifying deity while connecting with earth or man. Going to the second passage, we read in Acts 10, 28 and 9, another possible connection to the parasha. Quote, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for, unquote. Now, again, we have to put this passage into context to understand it correctly. Peter had just been shown by God that men of other nations are not unclean in and of themselves. It's their behavior from which we are to remain separated. Moving to verse 34 through 7, quote, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shown no partiality, but in every action whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Take note of that, Christians. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Yeshua, he is the Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, unquote. This issue of impartiality is specifically mentioned in our parasha. However, God may have provided a demonstration of this concept by allowing mere humans to see the feet of God, or Yeshua, to illustrate God reaching down to verify his presence on the mountain of his reality. Although the blue base separated his feet from the earth, a connection was made as evidenced by the viewing of the 74 witnesses. These men could clearly understand that which was not normal or heavenly in association with the normal or humanity. Similarly, Peter was shown this connection through a different illustration in the context that he could understand through a vision of clean and unclean animals. Unfortunately, many Christian clergy teach this passage means we can eat anything we want. That is not so. This is erroneous to say the least. It indicates these Bible teachers are ignorant of the fact that God is teaching Peter about our relationship with non-Jews and has absolutely nothing to do with food. Perhaps God allowed these elders, Moshe, Aharon, Nadav, and Avihu, a glimpse of a symbol of God or Yeshua's deity, before they could fully understand its significance. Later, when God would articulate the intricate instructions for the priestly garments, colors, significance, and types of stones to be used for each tribe in the breastplate, and instructions for building the tabernacle, these individuals would experience a tremendous aha moment. God allows these exhilarating sparks of insight for those who continue to ask, seek, and knock. These sparks are well worth the effort of continued prayer, thanksgiving, supplication, meditation, and study. May we all continue to seek these sparks of God's Torah, knowledge, and insight to enhance our ability to shine for the glory of God 
before a lost world. Amen.